the Torah tells us that when a person expresses a neder, usually translated as a vow um, or a commitment, the Torah says, Lo yachel dvaro. They should not make their words profane or unholy. The Torah further commands us, Kachol A person has to follow everything that comes out of their mouth. So the Torah puts a very great premium, very great value on our words. You have to keep everything that you say. If you say you will do something, or you say you will not do something, whatever you say, you have to keep your words. And we find many times in the Torah, people who make various commitments, and God expects them to follow through on their commitment. One classic example was Jacob. Jacob was in Bethel when he had a dream. He lay down and he had a dream in the um, portion of Vayetze. He has a dream. He sees the famous ladder. And he wakes up in the morning after God had promised to protect him. And he makes a vow. He says, if God will protect me and I come back here in peace and I'm taken care of and have everything I need, I will. He makes two parts of this vow. I will make this a house of God, and everything that I earn, I will tithe and give a tenth to God. Later, he spends 20 years at his uncle Lavan's house, where he gets married four times over, and has um, 12 children, and he comes back safely, and he um, is back, and he comes back to the land of Israel, and God comes to him, and God says, You've got to keep your vow. You said you're going to go to Bethel and make it a house of God. Go to Bethel and build a house of God over there, which Jacob does. He then goes to Bethel and he follows his, he fulfills his vow, his commitment. So this is just one example of many throughout Scripture we have where people made various commitments and God expects us to always fulfill our commitments, any commitment that we make. So Jewish law divides nedarim, that's the Hebrew word, vows or commitments, um, into three different groups. The first type of group is nidre hektish, holy vows. What are holy vows? Holy vows in temple times were where a person would make a commitment to offer a sacrifice. They've committed they're going to offer a particular sacrifice similar to Jacob's commitment that I'm going to build a house for God in this place. Or they make a commitment to donate to the temple or donate for God similar to Jacob's commitment to tithe everything, take a tenth of everything and give it, give it to God. And usually they would give that money to the temple in Jerusalem. Today, though, the temple no longer stands. The temple was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago. We're mourning for that during this three-week period. But we still make nidre hektash, holy vows, to donate to a synagogue or to donate to charity. When a person makes a commitment, says, I will donate a certain amount or a certain item to charity or to a synagogue, one has to follow through on that vow. One has to follow through on that commitment. It's required to follow through on it. In fact, 
when we had our own government, whether in ancient Israel, when we had our own government, or even in the diaspora, when there were autonomous Jewish communities, uh, the synagogue or the charity would be able to collect on the commitment. If you said, I, if you said, I will give a certain amount to a certain cause or to a synagogue, you've got to, you had to pay that up. They could sue you if you didn't. They could collect on it. Once you've made that commitment, that is a required commitment. Come back out of it. And so we have actually incorporated, it's a good thing to commit, if you're right, one, however much one is able to, but to commit to vows or to um, donate to charity. Um, we've always historically donated, made such commitments during difficult, challenging times. Somebody is sick, you need help with a particular maybe financial issue or maybe something else that you're trying to do. You want God's help and you say, God, if you help me, I will or I will donate a particular item or I commit to give a certain amount of charity um, in honor of um, so that you should help me with this, which a person is allowed to do. Normally we should not say, I'm going to help, I'm going to commit to God, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do a mitzvah if God helps me. But we are allowed to give charity. Saying, if God helps you, I'm going to give charity. We are allowed to do that. We have to, when we make such a commitment, we must follow through with that commitment. That is a vow, that's a commitment, and we are required to follow through with such a commitment. In fact, we've incorporated such vows into our prayers. We have a tradition that after somebody gets called up to the Torah, gets called up to the honor of re reading, saying the blessings on the Torah, we do a Misheberach prayer, which essentially says that God, who has blessed Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, may he bless this individual who has come up to the Torah in honor of a donation that they are going to give. And usually in most synagogues, we don't do it here, but in many synagogues, they'll make you stipulate exactly how much you're going to give to the synagogue in honor of, um, in honor of your reading the Torah. Uh, we also do it for the sick. If somebody is sick, um, we make a special Misheberach, a special prayer, um, today, it's not done as much, but initially the Mishaberach was designed in a way that you say, if God, who has blessed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Aaron, David, and Solomon, shall heal this person who is sick, um, because someone, a relative, a friend, is going to donate a certain amount of charity to the synagogue in their honor. So it's a commitment to donate to the synagogue um, in order to heal somebody. Um, and really, uh, we have a list over here, a prayer list, but ideally, it's not enough just to pray, but we should give to charity along in their honor as well. But initially, again, this was actually made not just as a prayer, but as a commitment to give to charity in their honor. And in fact, the Yisker service, four times a year, on Yom Kippur, on Shemini Atzeret, the last day of Passover and the second day of Shavuot, four times a year, we recite the Yisker prayer the memorial prayer for our loved ones. If you read the Yisker prayer, what does it say? It's a Yisker Lakim et Nishmat, may God remember the soul of my mother or my father of somebody else, because I am going to give a certain amount of charity in their honor. So it's essentially a commitment to donate to charity in the honor of our deceased loved ones and in their memory. So, um, 
So these were the, the Mishaberachs and the Yisker service are all essentially commitments to charity or vows to charity um, that we're going to give to charity in honor of whatever it may be. And the reason why we do this is we try to get people to commit to charity at a moment of inspiration, whether they were called up to the Torah or when they need help for somebody who's sick or when they're mem- remembering their loved ones. And that way they make the commitment. Later, they may not be so excited about the commitment, but you already made it. You have to follow through. You have to fulfill it. A person, of course, should be careful not to commit something that they cannot do because you have to do it. So you only commit as much as you're able to do, but you make the commitment and then you follow through on it. So uh, a 13-year-old boy can be called to the Torah, are they expected to then make it? In some synagogues they would. Um, You're expected to. We don't do that here. Uh, We do the Mishaberich without asking for the financial commitment. Uh, Many synagogues don't do it anymore. Um, People were uncomfortable about the fundraising during prayers, but it was a common Jewish custom, and um, for good reason. It fundraised for the synagogue, but it's also good to donate to charity um, in honor of being called up to the Torah, in honor of um, in, in honor of the prayer for the sick, in honor of your loved ones, and uh, the Yisker definitely remains a Yisker appeal. I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's a donation, to, a commitment to give to charity in honor of your loved ones. Yes, Bart? Yeah, how do you determine uh, the amount Everyone chooses however much they want to give. Whatever you feel you're able to give. Um, If you can't give very much, then commit whatever you can give. It's still a mitzvah. Even giving a penny to charity is a mitzvah. If you can give more, by all means, give whatever you can. Right? The... uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you can ask your rabbi. They might be able to help you determine. Right. The Tanya quotes... Um, right, the Tanya quotes the verse, I believe it's from Job, that um, a person would give everything they have to save their life. You'd give away all the money you have to save your life. So if charity, we know charity saves lives. That's what the Talmud says. Charity saves lives and definitely saves you spiritually. So you would give everything you have in theory to charity. Now, it's not a wise thing to give everything you have to charity. You need to live yourself. (laughs) But in theory, you should give everything you have. Take out what you need for yourself and give the rest. That's really the ideal. Um, Yeah, that would be the ideal. There was a fellow... um, there was a fellow in Brooklyn who used to fundraise a lot and he used to always say open your wallet take out a dollar and give me the rest <laughs> so, but the, the truth is you should take what you need and give the rest to God um, what you could also do and this is uh, since, it, since it was brought up it's really we're, we're a little off topic um, but I, I, I should mention it um, what someone also could do is um, once they no longer need it meaning in your, your will, once you're gone, once you no longer need it, then you can give everything that you feel your children don't need. Um, leave that for charity. and Then you're giving everything to charity. That's definitely, that's definitely an option that if you haven't considered it yet, you definitely should. Yes? So if you're a, a Jewish, Jewish person and you're in good standing, Armenian, 
not a great criminal or something. And you, you want to become a member, an actual member of the synagogue and, and pay. Is that one lump sum a year? I'm not a big fan of synagogue membership. It's a topic of its own, but we, um, no, we, we, we're not big fans of synagogue membership. That's requiring people to give specific amounts. Um, yeah, it's, it's, not a, it's not a good idea. We did a class on, um, on synagogue membership, I think, at one point. So you can give uh, from, for yourself, then you would just uh, give so much a month. As much as you want. You want yeah. to each, each month give right. something. I mean, a person's required by Jewish law to give at least 10% of their earnings to charity. Right. right? But you could be the, the synagogue could be the charity. Absolutely. 10 cent, 10 Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. You, could, you, could, you have the right to choose where you want to give it. But you can give more than 10% if you don't need. Uh, if you have more than what you need, you have the option, of course, of giving more. So that's the first kind of vow. Citra, sorry. Did you have a question? Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, I know this is very, very idealistic. Shouldn't there be some part of our soul or heart that isn't conditional on save my life and I'll give you money? I, I mean... Yeah. What do you mean? I mean, shouldn't we be generous just to be generous? Just yes, we should be generous. It's a mitzvah to give charity. Um, I know we've kind of segued into charity, which is not our topic today, but it is a mitzvah to give charity. It's a very, very, it's the greatest mitzvah. Um, I mentioned that verse that a person is ready to give everything when I was asked, how much should you give? And so you're ready, whatever you'd be ready to give to save your life, that's how much you should be prepared to give to charity, um, which is everything you have in theory. Um, it's not wise to give everything because you need to take care of yourself, but that shouldn't be the reason to give charity to save your life. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. So the first type of vow we said is Nidre Hektesh, donating holy vows, committing to give. The second type of vow is called Nidre Isur, vows of prohibition. And that is where a person would say a particular item or an act pertaining to a particular item is now forbidden. And then they would be forbidden from doing that act or using that item that they have forbidden, forbidden upon themselves. And so they would say, why would they do it? They would be making a vow maybe to keep away from something negative that they're struggling with, they're having a hard time keeping away from. Or maybe to avoid a transgression that they're afraid to get too close to. An example would be, say, somebody who's struggling with alcohol, with an alcohol addiction, would make a vow to never touch alcohol. So now, in addition, they'll commit to never touch alcohol again. So in addition to it being a bad thing, and maybe their AA group um, would help discourage them from it, but now they've also added a religious prohibition, because the Torah says you cannot go against your commitments, the religious prohibition not to consume alcohol, because they've now committed not to consume it. So a person can make a vow to not do anything, or to do something, not to do any particular thing, to forbid anything. It's called Nidre Yisur, vows of prohibition. Our sages generally discouraged us from making such vows. They said you should be satisfied with the prohibitions placed upon us by the Torah. The Torah gave us 365 prohibitions. That's enough do-nots 
Our sages over the years added to those prohibitions for various reasons. They made what we call rabbinic prohibitions. The Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism, when we had a Supreme Council, added various prohibitions. We have many rules of the Torah as is. You don't need to add to those rules. So our sages generally said, there's enough prohibitions as is, you don't need to add to them. But they did agree that in a time when someone is struggling, like the alcoholic we just mentioned, um, or afraid of a transgression, then they should make such vows if that will help them avoid doing something they shouldn't be doing. My great-grandfather was a rabbi who moved to this country from Europe in 1924, almost 100 years ago. And... I, years ago, no? Sorry? Did you say 1924? 1924. So that's 97 years ago, right? No, 97 years ago, yes. Almost 100 years ago. So, and upon inspection, he was a rabbi and he was involved in the kosher uh, uh, certification. And upon inspection of local slaughterhouses in New York, he felt that the kosher standards in all the local slaughterhouses were simply not up to par. And it took a long time, actually, for kosher meat standards to improve in the United States. And that's a story of its own. It deserves maybe its own class uh, about kosher meat development in the United States. Um, but he, when he saw the the, what was going on in the kosher slaughterhouses, he vowed to never eat meat in the U.S. And that was a vow that he kept for more than 50 years until his death. He never ate meat even after the situation improved and you could get glot kosher and high-level kosher meat, he still he kept his vow and he never ate meat again. I don't know. So that's the second type of vow, vows of prohibition. First was vows of holiness to today to donate a vow to, to make a particular donation um, to a charity or to a synagogue. A second kind of vow is nidre yisur, vows of prohibition. Both those vows the Torah specifically mentions. The Torah does not explicitly mention the third type of vow, which is to follow commitments that we make. We make commitments that we're going to do something. That doesn't fall under one of the above categories mentioned in the Torah. However, our sages understood that keeping all commitments are required under the general commandment, he must do everything that comes out of his mouth. And so halachic authorities say this is, falls under the rubric of yedot nedarim, literally the handles of the vows, or additional forms of vows not explicitly mentioned in the Torah. But we are required to follow through on commitments. So whenever we make a commitment, we must do it. If you say, I will meet you tomorrow, you must be there tomorrow and meet that person. If you say, I am going to send you this thing later, you must send it to them. Whatever you say you're going, I'm going to buy something for you. Whatever you say you're going to do, you must do it. Once you've made a commitment, you have a religious obligation, commandment by God, to follow through on that commitment. We often don't pay attention to the various things that we tell people that we're going to do. Sometimes we intend to do things, 
and we forget about them. You tell someone I'm going to do something for you and then you forget. Or some, something gets in the way, you're no longer able to do it. Sometimes people tend to make commitments that they never intend to fulfill. They only make the commitment to make the other person happy. Yeah, I'll meet you tomorrow. They never plan to actually show up. But they just want, you know, they don't want the other person to be upset. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll come with you. And then later they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm too tired. I'm too, too busy. Cannot do it. So such commitment, if you make a commitment in, under Torah law, you have an obligation to fulfill that commitment. So we have to therefore be very, very careful to never make a commitment unless we know with certainty that we're going to follow through on that commitment. And for that reason, Jews are very, very careful whenever <laughs> we say we're going to do something to always say, Bli neder. Bli neder without a vow or no commitment. You say, I'll meet you tomorrow, but no commitment. Always add those words. People might not know what bli neder means. You could say in Hebrew, bli neder, if someone understands it. Or you could say no commitment. They might think you're, I think they call it flaky. They might think you're un, right? They might think you're unreliable if you keep saying no commitment. But they'll learn with time that when you say no commitment, it's more reliable than the people that don't say no commitment. But then you have to do it if you, if you don't say no commitment. So we always say, we always say no commitment, right? We've, or bli neder, without a commitment. In, uh, in this country, we have another way of doing it. People say, I'll try. I'll try, right? When someone says, I'll try, you know that means they're not actually going to do it. Uh, the truth is, if you make a commitment to try, then you'd be required to try. So that doesn't work, right? You really have to say no commitment. So to be clear, to be clear, firstly, when we say vow or commitment, you don't have to wor- use the words I promise or I vow. You just say, I will do this. I will see you tomorrow. Then that itself is already a commitment. That is a neder. You're already required. You don't need to use the word vow or promise to be required to fulfill what you say. You have to keep everything you say. Now, in Judaism, when we get married, we don't have vows. There are no vows when you get married. Um, we rather, we hand over a ring, and we have a statement that you say, and then there's the seven blessings, the Sheva Brachot and the Ketubah, but there's no vows. That's a, um, I think, I don't even think, I don't know if that's Christian or that's a secular thing. I don't think that's secular. Um, we don't have marriage vows in Judaism. Um, however, however, when you get engaged, you are making a commitment to get married, right? You say you'll get married. That is a commitment. That is a vow. Um, and so once engaged, um, we'll soon see there's a way to break a vow, but you can break off an engagement with mutual agreement, but one should be careful doing so because, um, because there is a vow involved, right? There is a commitment involved. So, there are, though, a handful of exceptions to when we're not required to follow our commitments. They include Nidre, what's called in Hebrew Nidre Zerusin, commitments of posturing. 
So that would be the example given is, say, a merchant in the market. If you ever go to Israel, you go to the shuk. The, the, here the farmer's markets aren't the same. But you go to the markets in Israel, and over there you want to buy something, you got to bargain. They give you a price, and then they use the, you, you give them a price, and then you kind of meet somewhere in the middle. So as part of the bargaining, and this could be also when you're bargaining over a big deal, it doesn't have to be in a market, it could be over something with a business partner or, or, a business, or another, when you bargain, so people always posture. They say, I'm $100, not a penny less. I will, not, I will not sell it for a penny less. Now you just made a commitment. I will not sell it for a penny less. So the Talmud tells us, no, that's just posturing. That's not a real commitment. Those commitments don't count. If you make a commitment while bargaining as part of a posture to bargain, just to kind of make your words stronger so that the person thinks you're serious, that's not a real commitment. You could sell it for less. That's fine. Don't worry about that. So if it's a commitment when you finalize the sale, that's different. Those commitments you've got to keep. In fact, we have a whole process with somebody who breaks financial commitments. Um, in Jewish law, if someone breaks financial commitments, you cannot sue them because you cannot force them to keep their financial commitments. However, you can sue them, bring them to court, and make them face a curse from the court for not following their commitments. So you can punish them in that way by getting the course to curse them for not following their commitments. And that should serve as an encouragement. People who don't want to get cursed by the courts, should, uh, by the Jewish courts, by the rabbis, should be careful to keep their financial commitments. So, uh, but we should keep... Um, so, but posturing, just saying, I will not sell it for that price or I won't buy it for that price, that is not considered a commitment and that you don't have to worry about. Yes, Barry. So, the Jews who uh, will, uh, uh, will normally go to a betin, uh, could they, well, could they, could they bring the person to a betin, assuming the other person is as uh, as, as they are, and would the betin make a ruling on that? So, if you if you sign the contract or you finalize the commitment, in other words, I'm paying you to do something for me or the like, right? If there's if there's a give and take both ways, right, then that's a, that's a valid contract that you could enforce. If somebody just makes a financial, a commitment, right, verbal commitment, I will buy this from you, right, but there was no, it was never finalized, then that, that's the kind of commitment where a person should keep their word, but you can't legally force them to do so. We have a, you can, though, get them cursed if they don't do it. Right, so the sale hasn't happened yet. They've only committed to making a sale or to buying something. Nobody put any money down yet. Right? No, it didn't cost anyone anything yet. But, um, but, so, but posturing is not an issue. Don't worry about that. Another type of vow commitment we don't have to worry about is Nidre Chicago's mistaken commitments. You made a mis- commitment based on a mistaken assumption. We do it all the time, right? You make a commitment thinking one thing and you didn't realize Right? You had a totally mistaken assumption. Right? You thought it was one thing, and it turns out to be something totally different. Right? So that kind of commitment is not a real commitment. Right? It was based on a mistake. Right? Once you make the mistake, then the commitment makes no sense. You recognize the mistake, the commitment makes no sense. Another type of, commi- another type of commitment you don't have to worry about is Nidre Onus, forced commitments. If you were threatened into 
making a commitment. Um, someone held a gun to your head or threatened you some other way, right? By, you know, saying I'm going to harm you financially or hurt you, hurt you in some other way unless you agree to do this. You're not obligated to follow through on that, right? Because you were forced into it. You had no intention to really do it. Another kind of commitment that's not required is to follow through is a commitment to transgress the Torah. Someone says, I'm going to eat pork. You can't eat pork. Right? If someone says they're going to do something that the Torah forbids, that commitment doesn't stand because the Talmud says you've already made a commitment to God to follow the Torah. Our ancestors stood on Sinai, at Sinai, and made a commitment already to follow the Torah. We're already committed to it. So we can't make another commitment to go against Torah. So any commitment to go against Torah has no validity whatsoever. So in all these instances, we don't. these are exceptions when we don't have to keep our commitment. But otherwise, we do. Yes. Yes, of course you don't have to keep them because they're absolutely forbidden. You're absolutely right. Now, because our words are so important, and because we must follow everything we say, the Torah gives us the room to annul our commitments. Without annulling them, you have the absolute responsibility to follow through. So the Torah in this week's parsha allows a father of a young girl to annul their daughter's vow or a husband to annul his wife's vow. These are called hafarat nedarim. Neither form is practiced today. However, there is another way we can annul a vow by convening a bethdin of three Jewish men. Now this doesn't have to be an official bethdin. This can even be an ad hoc. You can call three Jewish men if they know the laws of vows. Call them together and have them annul your vow. Yes? Don't we annually... I'm going to get to that. So, what you do is, you state the person who made the commitment has to say exactly what their commitment was and say, I regret having ever made the commitment. Not that I don't want to follow it anymore. That's not good enough. You say, I don't, I, it was good for a little while, but now I'm done with it. That doesn't count. You can't annul it that way. But if you say, I regret having ever made the commitment, then the, Beth, the, the Bethdin says, Mutarlach, it is the vet, your vow is annulled. Now that's only if the commitment was to yourself. If the commitment was to another person, you don't have the right to annul a commitment made to another person without their approval, Right? because they were relying on that commitment. You need their okay before you annul it. But a commitment made to yourself, that I am going to wake up at a certain time every morning, I'm going to exercise for 30 minutes every day, whatever it may be, whatever commitment you make, or I'm not going to eat meat, or whatever else it may be, you can call a Beth Din and say, I regret having ever made this commitment. I should have never made it. Then the Beth Din can annul your commitment. What if a person comes to Beth Din and says, you know, I don't want to do it anymore. They say, do you regret having ever made it? Well, it was good for a while. I don't regret having ever made it. So then what the Bethden can do is they can try to find a petach, an opening. In other words, they can try to ask the person, if you knew your current circumstance, that you would now regret it, would you have then made the vow if you knew that there would come a time that you would regret it and be forced to continue keeping it? And then if the individual says, you know, had I known, I would have never made the vow. 
then that's enough to re truly regret having ever made the vow, and then they're able to annul the vow. Now, it has become a Jewish custom, as Don pointed out, to annul our vows on the day before Rosh Hashanah. So after services before Rosh Hashanah, we convene people in shul and ad hoc bethdin, convene a couple other people in shul, gather them together, say, you'll be my bethdin, and I will now, I would like to now annul my vows. Now, there's some doubt if that has any halachic value. Because in order to annul your vow, you need to say exactly what the vow was and explain why you now regret it. Unless you can state your vow and explain a valid reason why you regret it, the Bethden has no authority to annul that vow. So though we do it, it doesn't really have any real halachic or legal value. We do it. The, there's also a custom every Rush, well, the day before Rosh Hashanah, when we ask the Bethden, this ad hoc Bethden, to annul our vows, we ask that we also declare all future commitments that we make null and void. So if you, in advance of making a commitment, declare it null and void, then it's void. If you void a contract before writing it, if you first void the contract, then the contract is voided. If you make a commitment, void a commitment before making the commitment, the commitment is voided. However, there's a catch here. The, when you make a commitment, if you void all commitments in advance, it only voids commitments that later you make at the time you're aware of having voided it already. But if you forget about how you voided your commitment when you make a commitment, then the voiding doesn't work. So, unless you remember at the time that you make your commitment, you say, I'll meet you tomorrow, and you remember, and on Rosh Hashanah I said, I'm not keeping any of my commitments this year. I'm voiding all commitments. Unless you remember that, it has no real value. So even this voiding in advance, since you usually don't remember it over the year, doesn't really have any halachic value. We also recite, before Yom Kippur, we recite Kol Nidre, where we have three men or more stand in front of the synagogue with Torah holding Torah scrolls as our Beth Din, and then the cantor leads the entire congregation together in declaring all vows that we made to be null and void and asking the Beth Din standing in front of us to void our vows. This is even more questionable because not only are we not saying what our vows are and why we regret them, we don't even necessarily even at the time remember our vows or have or do, we don't necessarily even regret them at the time. Uh, but not only that, we're not even talking directly to the Bethden. It's the whole community singing it together. So it doesn't really have any halachic value with regard to vows. Why we do it? Why then do we do Kol Nidre? And why we do um, the Hatarat Nidarim, the annulment of vows before Rosh Hashanah, is an excellent question beyond the scope of our class. It's really a class of its own. We actually did a class, some of you may recall, um, so going back about two or three years, we did a class on the controversy of Kol Nidre um, and um, whether Kol Nidre has any value and why we actually do it. But that's a subject of its own for Yom Kippur. It's on the podcast. You can find it there. So the rules that we've said that a person, 
whether you make a commitment to charity, nidre hektesh, whether you make a particular act or item forbidden, nidre isur, or just a commitment that a person makes. One has to fulfill their word. You have to follow your word. In an instance where you truly regret your commitment, you can't just ignore it. Say, nah, you know what? It doesn't really make sense. I know I committed to meet you tomorrow, but I actually have a full day tomorrow. And I, I really already have my schedules full. I don't have time. That you can't just say that. You can't just say, oh, I'm sorry, I won't be able to make it. You need to convene a Beth Din of three people, explain to them why, what your vow was and why you regret it, and have them declare it void it. So we see from this the importance of our words, how powerful our words are, and why you should be so careful to never make a commitment that you don't for certain know you can fulfill. We often, the words of the Torah, when the Torah says you have to f- follow, f- fulfill your words, the Torah says, Lo yachel devaro, do not make your words unholy, meaning that normally our words are holy, right? Normally our words are very holy. People often underestimate the par- power of their words. Every word you say is holy. Don't make it unholy. The words you say are very, very powerful, very, very meaningful, and have a great impact on you. In fact, the teachings of Kabbalah teach us that just as there is a world of reality as we know it, there is a different reality, a world, what we could call the physical reality that we recognize and see. There is another reality, a reality of verbal reality. Every word you say is real, and can never be taken back. It is set, and it is there, and it exists in a, rea- in a verbal reality. There is a story told of the founder of the great Baal Shem Tov, the great Hasidic leader, the Baal Shem Tov, um, that one time he heard two of his students arguing. One of them got very upset, and he said to his fellow stu- student, I will tear you apart like a fish. I know we don't use that expression, but apparently that was normal back then. That was his threat. Of course, it was a rhetoric, right? It was rhetorical. He didn't really mean to do that. And the Baal Shem Tov overheard it, and he called all his students together. And he asked them all to sit around in a circle. And they sat around in a circle. And he asked them all to put their hands on each other's shoulders to link up, which they did. They put their hands on each other's shoulders. They linked up. And then he um, I started to sing a song, deep song. And then he told everyone to close their eyes as they were singing this song. And he then closed the circle by putting his hands on the students that were on either side of him. And then suddenly everyone was able to see the fellow who had threatened his friend. They saw him actually taking his friend and tearing him apart. They started screaming in horror. Then the Baal Shem Tov took his hand off his student's shoulders. They stopped seeing it. And they all opened their eyes. And he told them, you should know that every time you say something, it really happens in a reality of speech, in a verbal reality. It's really there. It's really true. Every word you say is real. Words aren't cheap, right? People speak, speak of free speech, not in the sense that you can say 
that no one's going to stop you from speaking your political mind, but in the sense that people think that words are cheap or free. It doesn't matter what you say. I just said it. It was just words. What's the big deal? Words mean things. Words are very, very, very powerful. And words, as the Torah says, are holy. Every word you say is holy. You say something, it's meaningful. You make a commitment, that commitment needs to be honored. It's your word. It's very holy, very special. So it teaches us both the importance of measuring every single word we say. Be very careful. Don't say an unnecessary word. Don't make commitments that you cannot fulfill. Don't say things for sure that aren't true or that aren't accurate. And definitely don't speak negatively. Don't use negative speech. Negative speech meaning don't, not only don't say bad things about others, one shouldn't say. Don't speak pessimistically about how bad things will happen, whether to yourself or to others. That has real impact. Remember, everything that you say is real. Someone says some, speaks of something bad that will happen to themselves or others. They're making something bad happen to themselves. Speech is real. Speech is powerful. And don't use low-class words or words that are um, the term we use in, um, with, we have a Yiddish word, grab or Hebrew gas, coarse words. Don't use coarse words. Rough words. Don't use rough words curse words as well, but don't use even rough words, negative words that people, you know, take as you know, not refined speech, sophisticated speech. A person has to be very careful the way we speak should be in a dignified manner, in a sophisticated manner, in a refined way. Right? Speak as if you're speaking in public. Speak as if you're speaking to um, on, on an interview, or you're speaking to a dignified crowd, you should always speak that way. Remember, your words are very powerful. Words are gold. Words are valuable. You should treasure your words. And that's why the Torah tells us not to make our words unholy by speaking, by not fulfilling our, our commitments, but we can make our words unholy just by our choice of words. Don't use unholy words whether by speaking negatively, speaking pessimistically, using bad language, or just speaking in a rough way, or in a mean way, or in a um, slang way, we should always speak in an honorable way. Very important to keep our words very, very... Measure every word we say. The Talmud says, Mila uh, Basela. Think of every word as costing a sella. Sella would be the coin, like a dollar. If you think every word costs a dollar, every word that you speak, you'd be very careful with what you say, right? Words are very powerful. Always think before you speak. What happens if someone doesn't 